Hi everyone. For this episode of Agitprop Interviews, I have a true Brighton legend. I've been trying to tie in so much about where I grew up with this project and it's been a kind of amazing experience of self-discovery in some ways. When I was about 10 years old, it was my birthday, and we went to Mama Cherry's Soul Food Shack, which was a Brighton staple. If anyone remembers Gordon Ramsay's Kitchen Nightmares, you will remember that her cooking in her amazing restaurant that was in Brighton was the first time on the show that he was impressed by the food. So it became a smash hit and a staple, friendly Brightonian, and it was my birthday. And I thought, do you know what? I'm going to find out how to cook the soul in the bowl experience that I had when I went to the restaurant. So in doing so, I discovered that Mama Cherry had actually started an online TV show where she shows people how to cook soul food. And I just thought, my goodness, this is such an amazing opportunity for me to actually ask her if she'd like to be um, interviewed as a guest, as a celebrity chef, as someone that is super amazing. She was a pop star in the 80s and 90s, and she continued onto a TV career for quite some time. I just thought this would be a great way for me to interview more people about food um, and she's such an amazing person so I was very very humbled and touched that she said yes. So please enjoy the interview, um, very synchronistic that she actually lives very close to my family home so we're, we're kind of all meant to be on this journey together I think, there's so much signs and symbols in this project so <laughs> hopefully you will enjoy it. I will pop her links at the very end of the episode, so please enjoy. Yeah, okay, so you won't, I won't get to see your pretty face. I've been watching your videos. Oh, no, 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 don't watch them. <laughs> I'm much better. <laughs> of course I'm going to watch them. I'm much better in, in real life than the video. <laughs> well, okay. <laughs> How are you doing? How are you doing? Yeah, I'm doing good. Yeah, I'm doing good. I mean, I must admit, I'm getting to the stage now where I am super, super bored because I'm used to being really active. Yes. And I'm just not being able to be as active as I'd like in terms of booking and all that kind of stuff. Yes. My Airbnb was really beginning to take off my cooking experiences. And of course, they stopped quick. Yes, yes. People you, are just not know. traveling. Yeah, people, well, that's it. People can't travel, so that can't happen now. And I also had a lot of, I was getting to the stage where I was doing a, a lot of outside catering to pubs, like events and stuff. And that's all, you know, because they're all closed. <laughs> yes, yeah. So, Miss Terry, you started um, out in Wayne, which is outside of Philadelphia. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. And you were the oldest sibling of four, and your mum... Uh -huh is a reverend well she's passed away now but she was the reverend daisy thomas oh my goodness so do you think that growing up in philadelphia it had a big impact on your cooking style which everyone knows you for um well yeah i mean the thing is growing up in the suburbs of philadelphia area it did but more than that i'd say it was my summers spent down in virginia which is in the South at my grandmother's because obviously um, my mother, she had to work. So every summer she would ship all of us kids down to Virginia. And that's where the cooking really kicked in and we'd have a big family reunion. And I learned a lot of my cooking skills by just being with my elder aunts. 
Okay, so do you do you think that your mum and um, being like the breadwinner was like an impact on you sort of being so like a force of nature in yourself with your businesses? Oh yeah, <laughs> oh, yeah definitely. Well, mainly because because she we you know we were she was a single parent for so many years. Basically, she would have to leave out of the house say seven in the morning. She didn't get home sometimes till after seven at night. And it meant that me being the eldest, I was responsible for looking after my brothers and sisters and seeing to it that they got fit. So I've been cooking, proper cooking, say from the age of 10. Oh my goodness. So easy, easy. I mean, frying chicken from 11. Wow. What, um, what meals do you remember the most about your childhood? Um, the, the main meals are funny enough, and you wouldn't think of this as soul food, but it would be spaghetti because I could make a wicked bolognese sauce. Chili, I could make. And, and what I used to do, I used to call it poor man's chili because we would get the mince in, the hamburger meat, but we didn't have access, say, to kidney beans, but we could get as many baked beans, and we used to get those through the surplus store. So I would make, I came up with my own version of a chili con carne using tinned baked beans and mints and onions, pretty much. <laughs> but it was delicious. Yes, yes. I was wondering about how um, the church kind of impacted on you growing up, because I yeah. grew up in a sort of churchy environment myself. My my, uh-huh. my grandparents were sort of involved with the Salvation Army, and then my granddad left and became evangelical, and went, and we lived uh-huh. in the church for part of my childhood. But, like, think, no one really knows this about my, my life, because I think my YouTube stuff, people just expect me to be kind of like, I don't know, some alternative kid. They don't know anything about my upbringing. But yeah, I yeah. think the church kind of had a positive impact on me. It taught me, like, oh, so much. Yeah, the same for me. Because, I mean, I grew up in the church. I mean, we went to Sunday school from the time you could crawl. Um, and in my family, basically, the way church was, because they were, we were Baptists, and you would go to church, say, at 9 in the morning. But we often didn't get home until way deep into the afternoon. Because after church, there would be, in order to keep you there, there was dinner. So that way, there was, and we looked forward to a Sunday because you knew you were going to get a really big roast um, that was cooked by all of the different ladies. It was like a pot roast. And so there was a lot of food on a Sunday. And then you would stay there for the afternoon service. And if there was something special on in the evening, we would stay there. But in the church, it taught you basically patience. It taught you to, to give um, and share because, that's, you know, the basis that everybody shared. And we were just, I mean, and to this day, I, I go to church. I, I enjoy a good church service. I enjoy the fellowship and the singing. More than anything, I love the singing part of it. I've always found, like, British churches to be kind of, like, very much quieter than American uh, churches. <laughs> I know. But you know what? They've changed. When I first came over here in the 70s, it was like that. 70s and the 80s, I could not find a church to keep me awake. I'd go <laughs> to the churches and fall asleep. They were the most boring. And, and I also felt that people were always looking at me because where I grew up, the type of churches, if someone said something that you agreed with or you felt it, you would speak on it. Mm. So, you know, there's always like, yeah. Preach. Amen. Oh, 
yeah, hallelujah, all of that kind of stuff. <laughs> but when I started to go to church and when I lived in London, the first time I went, hallelujah, everybody in the church looked at me and I thought, I have to leave. And I'm Because they thought I was crazy. But now the churches down here in Brighton, I have found churches where, you know, we stand, we clap, we sing together, we everybody raises their hands, you go down to the front of the church, you can do oh, I love it. You know, so the churches have changed. And I think mainly because the churches nowadays they're embracing younger people. I think before it was churches were very old fashioned and stuck in their ways. And it was, you know, the old people ruled it, and that was just it. Now I think it's a young, I mean, my church that I go to, I go to City Coast, um, the the main pastor, when I first joined, he stepped down and his son's taken over now. And he he who stepped down, David was only 60. He was still young as far as I'm concerned. Mm. But his son, Jamie, he's in his 20s, and he is leading our church now. Wow, that's pretty cool. I think yeah. my nan and my aunt, great aunt, they went to the Salvation Army because it was more like that. And I think my, my grandma was more into more of a celebration. But my granddad was the yeah. total opposite. He was so studious. He went to, oh God, what was it called? Southern Cross Evangelical. And we lived, uh-huh. we literally oh, right. lived there. <laughs> Oh, I've seen that church. Oh, yeah, okay. it was very, very quiet. He was uh, so, it was strange because like... um. My, my granddad would like, he's very, very quiet man and uh-huh. very serious, but amazing. And I think they taught us so much about giving to other people. And we used to help yes. out with uh, people that couldn't get out their houses. And I think during uh-huh. lockdown, you you still think like that, don't you, in these kind of times to help other oh, people? Of course, I know, I know. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, I think a lot of people forget that places like the Salvation Army have been around for hundreds of years helping people. Yeah, and this it's not new to them, you know. And I think this this method of just opening your heart and giving it's it's new to a lot of people. I think a lot of people are now are taking it on board. When you look at the situation with um, the Captain Tom, you know, who just turned a hundred today, yes, for some, a single individual to be able to earn, like, to not earn, but to raise thirty million. That's how much he raised today. Up to today, thirty million go towards the national health charities in order to do that that means people are digging deep in their pockets and giving and i just love seeing that i love it yes it's uh, it's a testament to the good side of humans (laughs) for sure um so you went to a quaker university is that right yes i did (laughs) (laughs) and and, I mean, you must have read. You must have read the story behind that, or heard me tell it. I read I, an interview, but I wanted to ask you some more about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, go on, because I went there, but I didn't know I was. I didn't know it was Quaker to the last minute. <laughs> <laughs> so, to, Quakers are kind of like they're still not very well known. I think in the UK, people don't really know much about the Quakers, but they're more yeah. like it's not the same as Christianity in the in the broader sense, is it really? No, it's not. But although it is, I mean, if there is, you know, you believe in God and all of that. Um, but Quakers have been around for hundreds of years. And basically, it's more of like a humanitarian organization. They believe in peace, um, which is why if you, you know, back in the days of the Vietnam War and stuff, if you're a Quaker, you can say, I'm not going to fight because I'm a Quaker. Yes. They believe in fighting. And they also believe in consensus. Um, which means everybody pretty much has to come 
other and agree. And sometimes it's hard to get people to agree. Um, but if you can get them to agree, then you move forward. Um, but then when I then I discovered that although I went to this Quaker university, I had been embroiled in Quakerism for many, many years without even knowing it. Because we every summer, my mother would send us to a camp. See, in America, we used to go to summer camps. It's not so big over here in the UK. No. In America, your child, when the summertime comes, you go off to camp because parents have to work. And the camp that we went to for many, many years, I only discovered was a Quaker camp. And I only discovered that because of when I went to my university, um, uh, I discovered that, you know, I was having issues and I was going for some counseling. Um, and I discovered that there, that there the people that went to my school, my alma mater at my college, used to run the camp that I went to. And I could not believe it. The coincidence <laughs> is that every summer I would go to this camp and these camp leaders who I took to because they understood poverty and they understood how to talk to people and to make us feel good. And, and I lost touch with them. And I just happened to mention to my counselor these people's names. And they went, well, you do realize that they went to this school. And I, that blew me away that I ended up in the same university to the people that I was you know, opening up to as a young child. Oh, my God, that's crazy. It's those yeah, synchronistic it's things, isn't it? That just like they, they kind of meet, they hit harder when things like that happen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but, do you... I mean, but the thing about the Quaker school, though, to be honest, I, you know, I, I went mainly because I was trying to get out of taking a test at school <laughs> i had to take it was and the only way you could legitimately get out of a class was you had to when you were a senior you had to say i'm going to a college conference so because i said and i looked up on the board and i could see and i went oh there's a college conference happening so i just wrote it down and i said to the teacher i'm sorry but i can't come in because i'm going to this college conference <laughs> and i said okay and i went i sat through it gave me the application and I went oh okay and I went home and me and my friend filled it out together and it was her handwriting because mine was too messy uh, <laughs> I just dictated everything we sent it off I never even thought about it and then about six months later I get a letter through the post saying we'd like to offer you a full scholarship to come to our college and because it was a full scholarship it was also 12-hour drive away from where I lived. And I wanted to get as far away as I could from home. And I thought that was my only way of escaping poverty. Um, I just accepted. And then it was literally a week before we were getting ready to go that my mother sat on the bed and she was going, ooh, ah. And I went, uh-oh, something must be wrong. I went, what's up, mom? She went, well, Shavita, you have shocked me. No one would have thought you, the wild child, had chosen a Quaker school. <laughs> <laughs> and I basically went, what? You're joking. And she said, well, you do realize there's no smoking. There's no drinking. <laughs> and she listed all these things I could not do at this school. And I just turned around to her and I said, you watch. 
how things change. <laughs> and of course they do. <laughs> <laughs> so did you get in trouble at this at this college for wanting to set up a gospel um choir? Um, no, not really, because it was at this school there were, I'd say, maybe thirty, thirty blacks in the whole school. And before I got there, there were that people were talking about wanting to put together a gospel choir. And I've always sung gospel, so I said, come on, let's just do it. And because it was a Quaker school, Quakers will open up their arms to everything, basically. And this was another form of, you know, it was our way of worshiping. So, no, we were great. I mean, we used to get invited to go places to sing, and it was great. We'd (laughs) We'd hold concerts, and I loved it. I absolutely loved it. I'm fascinated by the Quakers because I think they had an early version of gay marriage as well within Quaker system. I think they probably did, yeah. 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 (laughs) (laughs) So what led you to come to England? Because I read that you came in 1978 with an American touring theatre company and you were a stage manager um, Uh for a production. So what what was the production? Well, the production was, it was a gospel musical and it was called, get ready, <laughs> Little Willie Jr.'s Resurrection. Oh. <laughs> exactly. And the thing is, in America, it, and it was a show that was about, it was kind of like roots. So it was a show that was about um, slavery, tracing it all the way from the days of slavery, all the way up into modern day times when the descendant, Little Willie, his grand, great-granddad was Big Willie, falls in love with a white girl who was part of the generation of from the slaves. So it was about this interracial hookup between these two people and how they ended up getting married and all of this. And it, but it's all with, done with gospel music. But the problem we had was we didn't know how different our languages are. Because in America, Little Willie Jr.'s resurrection meant nothing. Over here, the minute you say Little Willie, everybody immediately took it to a sexual thing. (laughs) (laughs) And the theater that we were in, our our producer, he wasn't aware of what the West End really was. And I think he just came over here to England, was offered a theater, and jumped on it. He said, everybody, we're in the West End. In fact, we were on Regent Street, which ain't quite the West End and the theater and the theater that we were in was known. It was like known previously as an adult entertainment. (laughs) So the show before us was let my people come. Oh, which was a sex show followed by little Willie Jr.'s resurrection. (laughs) (laughs) So when we opened, it opened to a whole bunch of men and mats. <laughs> and when it got to the intermission, we would go back out and realize that they'd all left because they realized it wasn't a proper sex show. And nobody oh. was taking off no clothes. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> so, so the show didn't last very long. It lasted for two months. Okay. And... I then discovered the national health because I basically, I'd always suffered from cysts and all sorts of women problems. Mm. Um, and, and one day I was in agony 
And someone said to me, well, why don't you just pop down to A&E and have it looked at? And I said, well, I can't because I don't have any um, medical insurance or anything like that. And they went, this is England. You don't need it. Just go to the doctors. So I, the show was running. And I put my assistant stage manager took over. And I said, look, I'm going to pop down to the hospital because I'm in a lot of pain. And when I got there, they basically said immediately, we think you have a cyst. It is in danger of rupturing. We're going to check you in right now. And I was like, but, but, but I don't have any money. And they said, you don't need money. You are sick. We are going to check you in. So they checked me in. I rang through to tell everybody, look, I'm sorry, but they kept me in a hospital. Lo and behold, that night, the show closed. Um, something must have been going on behind the scenes that we were unaware of. But the show closed and everybody was told to pack their bags and they were being put on a plane the next morning. I couldn't. I was in hospital. So... The guy that I was with at the time, who was Little Willie, um, he was like my boyfriend at the time. He and I, because he said, I'm not leaving Sharita in hospital, I'm staying. Mm. And we were in a hotel in um, Notting Hill Gate. And um, the hotel that we were in, there were these two guys, young guys, who ran the hotel. They were like really spoiled. Their, their fathers let these two kids who were like in their 20s run the hotel. So Ray and I, Ray, convinced them to turn the downstairs into a studio because they were into music, these young boys. And so I became a kitchen, I became the um, chambermaid. Ray became a kitchen porter at the hotel. And that way we got to stay. So we let everybody else go back to America. We stayed. He then carried on singing um, with these guys and I was the chambermaid and then he got a record deal with EMI Records. It was during the time with Kate Bush and all of that kind of stuff. He did a cover of um, The Heavy People or was was that was that Kate Bush one? Um, I think it was. Or one of these Kate Bush tracks. He did a he did a thing, and so we stayed. And it was really I I owe me being here totally down to the NHS because if I hadn't gone to the hospital that day, I'd have been on a plane back to America, and I guarantee you my life would have totally been different. I'd have gone down an entirely different avenue. I would have never ever ever been a chef. Wow. So it's. Uh, it's almost like divine intervention. But... It was, it was, 100%, which is why, you know, on the Thursday nights now, when you go out to clap for the carers, I'm there. And last week I was clapping for the carers and at the end of it, and I screamed out down my street, I'm going to bake a cake next week. <laughs> <laughs> so I've literally just made 24 fairy cakes to take outside tonight when we clap. Oh. I'm going to put them on a table in front of my house and afterwards tell people to just one at a time, each house, to come over and take a cake if they like. Oh, that's really sweet. I make cookies with rainbows on with my little niece, who's two, and she, we were, oh. we were going to do something, but she, she's she got on one of these funny, like, she won't sleep at the moment. So at the time uh -huh. where we all meant to go out and clap, my sister was trying, like, desperately to get her to sleep, so we had to all be quiet and clap quiet. <laughs> <laughs> 
So, so are you all there at the same time at so, the house together? Yes, it's my granddad's home. And when he passed, we kind of all came together and decided to keep it. And it's like our Lovely. family home in Brighton. But my... Oh, nice. Yes. Yeah, so I've got my partner's home is being rented out in Brighton. And then we have this home in France. So it's, it's a bit of a crazy setup at the moment because right. I, I okay. gave up... I kind of just before um, the lockdown, I put all of my house stuff into storage. So I have my home like in transit. So I'm like, uh-huh. oh God, how do I throw things away? Because the, the tip and the dumps aren't open. I know, I that's a big hassle, isn't it? Yeah, so I'm a bit, I'm I'm glad to be here, but I'm with my sister, my sister, well, my brother-in-law, my mum, my mum's partner and my niece who's two. So it's, it's a whole family sh- event. Yeah. <laughs> But it's fun. It's fun. I like yeah, being with yeah. my niece. She's like two, but she's going on like five. <laughs> okay. That's the way kids are these days. <laughs> yes. She's a hundred centimetres tall already. She's really tall. <laughs> wow. Wow. Yes. So talking about family, um, you also have fostered loads of children. How did yeah, you start? Yeah. How did you get into that? Well, I, I, I started fostering when I... When Ray and I um, separated back in oh 1990, um, I already had two kids of my own, and and it's funny as a child growing up in poverty, I always said that if I am ever in a position to help a young person, I'm going to do it. And so from a young age, I always knew that I was going to foster or adopt. I just knew it. Um, but Ray wasn't interested. When I was married, he was like, no, 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 I'm not going to do it. You didn't want to do it. So I said, fine. So the minute he left, the minute we separated, I then went straight on and applied to become a foster carer because a really, really good friend of mine um, had been, basically, she got busted for drugs and she being just silly. It was just really stupid how it happened. And she was very naive and she had a young child. Well, she had a, a, a daughter. And when she got busted and we kept thinking, ah, don't worry, it'll be okay. Everything will be okay. And next thing we know, I went to the court to, you know, to hear the case because everybody was saying it's the first time a pens, she'll be fine, don't worry about it, no problem. And I'm and, and so I'm sitting there in that courtroom with her. And next thing you know, they went guilty. We thought, well, we knew it was gonna be guilty, but get community service or something simple no they went nope you're going down for nine months and we you know i was like what the hell and so she made no provisions whatsoever for her daughter because no one figured that this was going to happen so i then had to literally go to the school where the daughter was and explain to her i'm really sorry but your mom's going to prison (laughs) And you can't go home, so I'm taking you with me. So I just ended up taking this child. We went back to her flat. He packed up her clothes, and I just took her home with me. You know, there was just no question that I was going to leave this child to go into social services. You know, I just it wasn't going to happen, not on my watch. So I took this child, took her home, and she did an entire, well, it turned out it was longer. It was a whole year. She did a whole year living with me and my family, and she was best friends with my daughter anyway. And then when her mother got released and she ended up going back home, I thought, this is something I can do. This is how I can give back. 
I can help people. So I became, I went in and applied to become a foster carer. And then I gave it up when I came to Brighton um, because it was just, well, I didn't give it up completely because we carried on fostering for a year while I was down here and my husband was still in Chiswick. He carried on with the foster child we had because she was in university and we wanted to make sure she had that continuity um, to get her through. So, and then we gave up once she finished university. Then I quit fostering for the 10 years when the restaurant was in operation. And after that, when the restaurant went into closure and we went into bankruptcy and this and that, from that, I thought, you know what? I'm just going to go back to fostering. And that's what I did. And to this date now, I have fostered um, either short-term, long-term, respite, whatever, about 87 children. My gosh, that's so amazing. Yeah, I've got one currently with me. And, um, you know, and, and I mean, and the one before, I had a refugee. So I went into refugee. I had a young lad from um, Morocco um, who was asylum seeker. Uh, and a lot of people don't realize when people think of asylum, they think of war, basically, you know, and they think of these countries... They don't realize that there are a lot of countries around the world where a person is discriminated against and really beaten because they're gay. Yeah. And this young lad was gay. And he overheard his family saying they were going to throw him down a well at the age of 11. Oh. And he fled. He fled. And I am so glad when he fled that I'm the one who picked him up and caught him. And he was with me for... Oh, two and a half years while we, and now he's got his asylum. He is, uh, you know, his refugee status is done. He is so happy. And I keep telling you, you're in the best place down here in Brighton. You're going to love it. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, so that, that is wonderful, you know, to be able to help people who are discriminated against. Because to me, growing up as a black child, and I was born in the 50s. So I remember those signs that say no colors allowed. I was beaten when I went to school down in Virginia every single day for opening my mouth. Because I'm sorry, I was from Pennsylvania. I wasn't, and I was used to integration. I wasn't used to this segregation. So even from a young child, I'm in a rebel like that. Mm. So I'm not, I don't, I don't stand for any kind of discrimination. And when it comes to people who are you know, your gender is your gender. It is not who you are. It's just a, it's a part of you. You cannot discriminate against someone just because of how they believe and who they feel, who they are. And that's just it. So I now, I tend to, I, I like, if I'm asked, I've said no, 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 because I was thinking I got to give up fostering for a while. No, 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 no. But if they come to me with a child that has an issue because of sex, they're in. And my door's open. I'm bringing them in because I'm not having nobody pick on nobody. Yeah, oh, I think that's lovely. It's it's so true as well. Like, you people do forget that there are so many countries around the world where LGBT people are completely discriminated against. And totally. It's it's always under the radar. And But, hey, what can we do? We can just talk about it more to people and hopefully uh, offer uh-huh. some solace. <laughs> so, fostering all these children, obviously, you've been preparing massive meals all the time. Yes. <laughs> and, obviously, I know you from your incredible restaurant. And it's actually strange because 
I went to my birthday um, 17 years ago when I was a child to your restaurant. Really? And it, this week, oh, and it's my birthday. It's brilliant. Yes, and it's my birthday on the 3rd. So it's like a funny time lapse. On the 3rd of May? Yes. Uh, it's my foster son's birthday on the 2nd of May, and I'm on the 13th of May. Oh, you a Taurus? Oh, of course. Oh. <laughs> fantastic, fantastic. Taurus people are the best, obviously. Oh, definitely. We're the best. We're the best. We are the best. Fabulous. Yeah. So, did so you... you came. So you came to the restaurant for a birthday meal. Well, I hope we came out and sang happy birthday to you because I I usually did. No, I kept it quiet because I always used to get picked. Like whenever my parents would take me anywhere, I would always just like if we would go to the circus, they'd always choose me to come out on the stage with the clowns, and I was kind of traumatized about oh. it. <laughs> and it was like, no, I can't. And it would every single thing that if there was a possibility of a volunteer being chosen, they'd always choose me. So I said, no, 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 yeah. don't tell anyone. Which school? Which school? did you go to down here in Brighton? PCC, Portslade Community College. Oh, so you went to Portslade. Oh, okay. Yes. And yeah. then I, it became an academy when my sister was there, who's a couple of years younger. Um, uh-huh. But it's not the same. It, it kind of went downhill, I think, the time I went there. But I then went yeah. to Van Dean to do college, and then I went to London to do my uni. Now, how did you find Vondine College? Because that's where my foster child's going. Um, I really liked it because I, I was able to um, do things that they didn't offer at Portslade. Like the subject matter was, yeah. was more varied. But I found it a mm-hmm. bit restrictive because I did my um, GCSEs when I was very young. I did, in the Milok school I went to as a primary school, they asked me if I wanted to do my GCSEs when I was there. So I was 11. So really? I, GCSEs? Are yeah, you 11? Yeah. So I was ahead of my... my time group if you know what I mean like the people that were in my group and then when I went to do my GCSEs and the school wasn't as good as my primary school I kind of got this like rebellious streak and I thought well why can't I do whatever I want so I got to Vandy and I was a bit of a wild child but (laughs) (laughs) but I'm creative so I made it work (laughs) yeah good but it's a nice place so mm-hmm. talking about your amazing um, restaurant you had, what when did you start opening and think about opening a restaurant? Um, it was in, okay, bef- when I was fostering in back in Chiswick, back in London, um, from about 1995, I would say, at least, um, I had a good friend who lived in Skiathos in Greece on an island. And... Because when I was 16, I used to live in Mexico. I was an exchange student. She knew that I lived in Mexico. And she came up with this idea of, she said, how about if we open a Mexican restaurant? And I was like, what? She went, well, you know how to cook Mexican food. I said, yeah, I do. And she said, and I've been given this building. My husband has a club downstairs. And on the roof part, I'm going to put it into a restaurant. Would you like to help so I went, yeah, why not? Why not? So together, she and I, we opened up this restaurant called Desperados in Greece. So what I would do is every single summer, I would pack up my house and I would pack up all my foster kids and my kids and we would go to Greece for the whole summer. And I would work as the chef in the Mexican restaurant and the kids would hand out leaflets on the beach, um, hang out, and then they'd be partying in the clubs all night long. We had a brilliant time. Then I met my current husband in the year 
Yeah, at the beginning of 99 or the end of 98, we met. And so while I was still doing the restaurant, so for one summer, he flew out to the to Ski Athos with me while I did the restaurant and everything. And then we started to get a little bit more serious. Um, and we decided we were getting married in the year 2000. And he said to me, well, you know, have you ever thought about opening up your own restaurant? Because I decided it was too much going back and forth every year to Greece. And I said, well, I don't know because I don't know what to cook. What would I, what kind of food would I cook? I don't want to open a Mexican restaurant. He looked at me and he, and he said, why don't you cook what you cook every day? And I said, what? And he went, soul food. And it never occurred to me that American soul food is a proper cuisine in its own right and deserved a platform. So I then started doing my research and I realized that there were no mixed American soul food restaurants. There were a few Caribbean restaurants of which a lot of people confuse with American soul food, but there is a big difference. Um, so I thought, all right, I think we can do this. And when we decided that we were going to do it, I thought, I can't do it in London. It's too expensive. I don't really want to do it in London. And I had friends who lived in Brighton, and I used to come to Brighton all the time. And I loved Brighton. And I said, you know what? If I'm going to do this, I'm going to try Brighton. So I came down to Brighton. I moved in with a friend of mine. My husband stayed up in London. And um, and I started looking for venues. And then I came across the um, Soul Food Shack, which used to be a little French restaurant called Victor's. And um, and I thought it's small enough, cute enough, it's homely enough. Let's do this. So you know, I opened in two thousand and one. Wow! And then the rest is history. But yes. I've never ever run a restaurant by myself. <laughs> <laughs> it was. I think you're it, you're right when you were saying that there people do confuse like West Indian food with soul food because they don't mm-hmm. have like. There isn't that sort of like awareness of like southern cooking at all in the UK, and yeah, yeah. Pe- people think that everything soul food is really spicy and it's like jerk season, but it's it's exactly. a different cuisine. And I had to let people understand we are about spices and flavor, not heat. You yes, know? It, and and also soul food has a history, and that's something I wanted to really explore and to let people understand about history behind soul food comes from slavery, from the times of slavery. And that's where our food came from. And that's the origin of it. Mm. Because a lot of the recipes come from ingredients that would be discarded of. And it's like a, a resourceful way of cooking, which I think people... Definitely during lockdown when people were rushing to buy ingredients and thinking mm. about wasting ingredients. Uh, I know yep. you, there, you've spoken about using um, the leaves of root vegetables and creating like recipes out of things that you yeah. would normally discard of. And, and I think this, people just do not understand that that's where it came from. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> and during the lockdown right now, I've been doing lots of videos. I'm also trying to teach people how to reuse your food it's like leftovers mm. you know and, and to stop looking at leftovers as leftovers but look at as leftovers as ingredients of what can i use this to turn it into something else instead of throwing it away i don't throw away anything every single it's almost like all of my foods have a little touch of the soul from the dish before <laughs> I find a way of 
incorporating it in, keeping that flavor going and keeping it alive. That's so good. Like, and it's like using a fabulous skillet because, like, the, you always have like yeah. the the memory of the skillet. <laughs> yeah, definitely. So the soul food truck. If anyone was to imagine what kind of food was served there, but didn't get the chance to visit it, what would the typical dish do? Because I remember that it was like a tapas menu. I think when I went. Yes, it was the soul in the bowl, and what it was. I mean, with Gordon Ramsay, he helped me develop that concept of soul in the bowl, like tapas. So what you would get, or traditionally, if you came in, you would get um, some southern fried chicken, some jambalaya. You'd get some barbecue ribs. You'd get a lovely corn and um, black-eyed peas salad, some sweet potatoes, um, cornbread, and then maybe key lime pie or a peach cobbler. So you would, you know, and, and hot So it literally, you would get a tray filled with all of these different elements, small enough, depending on how many people are at your table. So we would either do it for two, or if there were four people at the table, then you'd get a slightly larger bowl, but there would be food for everybody to sample and taste. I remember I'm a, I was always um, the vegetarian in my family because I, I, uh-huh. I, I don't know why, but when I was a baby, I just couldn't eat meat. It made me really sick. So I, I grew up in a meat-eating family being the vegetarian. Right. <laughs> More ways to be different, obviously. But I remember yeah. there was the most gorgeous potato salad with apple in, or it had like oh, a fruit. Yeah. Oh, yeah. it was so yummy. And I remember my uncle had something, some fish. And... Uh-huh. Yep, and the catfish. That was the other thing, catfish goujons we would do. That's right. And I think I think a lot of people also <clears throat> assume that soul food is meat based, when actually it's vegetable based. So we would have traditionally in my home, you would have maybe three or four different vegetables on your plate and one piece of meat. Mm. So you know, so the greens and you know we're you know big on greens and corn and sweet potatoes and and hence I have developed loads of vegetarian dishes and vegan dishes. That's why, and I was so inspired. I I wanted to do in the last two years. I went. I had a makeup YouTube that I started with, and it became its own runaway train, really. And it was something that I never was passionate about because uh-huh. I wanted to do things that were like inspiring to me. And I always knew how to cook vegetarian food that my family would eat as meat dishes. Yeah. And I was so inspired by some of the the stuff I tried at the Soul Food Shack when I was uh-huh. learning how to cook vegetarian because it was the first time where I cooked meat free or I tried meat free dishes that weren't yeah. just like a chickpea and a pea <laughs> like rice <laughs> yeah you can make amazing flavorful things that aren't um just plain it's like and it's full of soul yeah yeah no i know <laughs> so thank you for inspiring me <laughs> good oh i'm so glad oh um so what was the story about going on the gordon ramsay show for, so for anyone that doesn't know um the gordon ramsay did a show where he went around all these different restaurants and the majority of them were tragic very bad yeah. restaurants and people tuned in to see him kind of like go crazy at the people in their kitchen and and then we were all excited being living in brighton that there was going to be a brighton restaurant and you came on the show and you blew him away with your amazing cooking so how yeah. did this start how did you get onto the well, show i mean basically because even though we you know like i say and i put my hands up i love the cooking side i do not love the paperwork side <laughs> <laughs> and you know we were doing okay 
But then it just got to the stage where we weren't running the business properly. We weren't able to get enough people in. And I think also part of my biggest problem was I'm, I'm not, I'm too much of a giver. So I was, I found myself in a situation where I was giving away most of my food to the homeless on the street. I mean, as soon as the restaurant closed, the homeless would come and then I'd feed them all the food that really I should be saving for the next day and I would give it away. Um, and then it also got to the state where, you know, we just were losing money and we needed a, a way of pushing it. And I knew that if we went on TV, that would help. <laughs> you know, I'm telling it like it is. If I would find go on TV, we'll get this exposure. People will know what American soul food is. People still didn't know what we were. Um, so the show that I picked to begin with was Wife Swap. My <laughs> husband was terrified. He was like, no, we can't, we can't. And I was saying, come on, come on, let's do it. But the problem is we didn't have any kids at the time. We stopped fostering. So the Wife Swap part was a little bit different. Even though they came and interviewed us, they said, well, you know, it, it, it. and my thing was if the wife would have to go down to the restaurant. Therefore, I'd get that exposure. But yes. then I'm thinking, but if she's not knowing what you say, it might be the wrong exposure. Yes. <laughs> I went down to the restaurant and my, I was really upset. I was tearful thinking, how am I going to save this flagging business? And then there was a letter that came through the post. And I just picked it. was laying on the floor. I picked it up, opened it, and it said, are you a new restaurant? Have you been running for under five years? Do you need someone to come in and show you how to do it? If so, come join us on Gordon Ramsay's Kitchen Nightmares, you know. And I thought, I'll give it a go. So I rang them up immediately. And, you know, I had a little chat to one of the producers. And he said to me, well, um, what do you think you could do that he can't do? And I said, fried chicken. <laughs> she laughed. She laughed. And then she said, well, there's no guarantee because, you know, there's um, quite a few quite a few people to go and see. But what we can do is we'll come down and see. So they sent someone down to the restaurant, one of the producers, to kind of like scope it out. And immediately they were like, oh, God, this is so small. And, then, and I said, listen, don't be focusing on the look of the place. Focus on my food, please. And they, I fed them. They liked it. And they went, well, yeah, this is pretty good. But Gordon has the last say. So I said, okay, fine, whatever. So he left. So then I was at, I was working with the University of Sussex, um, putting together a gospel choir there. And I was at this gospel rehearsal. And I got a phone call and somebody from the restaurant said, you need to get back here now. And I said, Why? And they said, because um, we've just heard from the producer that Gordon Ramsay is going to be here in half an hour to check your place out. So I said, I excused myself. And I said, listen, guys, I'm really sorry, but I've got to cut short this, in, this rehearsal. I need to get back to the restaurant. I don't know what's happening, but let me go. So I went back to the restaurant, and lo and behold, knock on the door, there was Gordon Ramsay. And he was coming purely to scope it out to see if it was if this was going to be one of the restaurants he would choose to work with and what you see at the beginning of the episode is real when he's going oh god looks like the shack 
from the outside, and then he came through the door, and, and then it was just, it was just about, I just went up to space, the thing is, we had no notice, so it's not like we cooked up something special for days to make sure it impressed him, um, and I just went upstairs, and I said, come on, Brian, we got to throw a plate down, let's just do it, so we gave him some papaya, some ribs, some chicken, some fish, we just piled it on, and he, immediately, his reaction was kind of like, come on. Oh, this looks a mess, but let me try it. And the proof was in the eating. Came back up the steps with a buddy empty plate, first time ever, and it ain't happened since. No, it was amazing. I remember the moment when we all saw it on telly. It was because yeah. I was I was literally a kid, and it stands out in my in my memory. Yeah, and not only that, and, and literally it was on Channel Four at nine o'clock. By the time he got back upstairs with that empty plate, I think it was 10 minutes past nine. So it only been on for 10 minutes when he cleaned his plate. Our phone from that point started ringing and it broke. It broke the answer machine because we were that, we had that many phone calls for people wanting to book. And literally we were booked for six months over that. And in one night we got booked up for six months. It's incredible, and it could have incredible. gone wrong. It could have gone terribly wrong. <laughs> oh, it could have gone terribly wrong, terribly wrong, as a lot of the ones did. Yes, it was that magical thing that happened. And yeah, but it was also, I think, because I was so open to learning, and I think that's what you need to be. You you, you have to park your arrogance at the door mm. and say, you know what, he's a professional. I need to see what he can do to help me, and I was so open. And also because of the fact that I said to him straight up, I said, Gordon, I've watched your show. Do not even think you're going to come in here with all that effing and blinding. I don't go that way. I ain't dealing with it. And I said to him, do you speak to your mother like that? And he said, no, mama. I said, exactly. So I'm your mama. <laughs> and no, ma'am. From that point on, we didn't have no problems. No, he was he was much more well behaved on that. He was, he was. But I think that it was just an incredible, incredible exposing moment of what soul food could be. Because I remember even when you yeah. went to the soul food shack, um, th their walls were full of like these really beautiful, charming portraits. Um, yeah. There was so yeah. much life and, and love on every surface, even though I think the menus and the tables and... Yeah, and, and all of that I made. I handmade all of the placemats, all of the menus... I put up the pictures on the wall. I wanted it to feel like people were in my in my home, in my front room, you know, and, and, and I wanted people to feel at home, and it became a really go-to place for Brightonians, and that's what I loved about it. It wasn't, even when we became big, I still made sure that locals could get in. I wasn't about, you know, saying, oh, I'm sorry, my regulars can no longer make it because I'm big now. So, you know, and, and we were turning 80 people a day away. Mm. Every day I would stand there and count and say, I'm sorry, we're fully booked. I'm sorry, we're fully booked. And it was that reason that we decided to upgrade to the big house, which is probably the biggest mistake we ever made in our life. But in hindsight, you don't learn, you don't know until you do it. No. What was the mistake made that, that, to move to the larger restaurant? Because it was over the road, like literally over the street. It was literally three doors away. Yeah. Well, the, for one, the deal wasn't as good as it should have been. Um, and then what it was also, it, we went from, say, 
having on on my staff, say, 10 people, up to about 25, because it was so much bigger. Mm. And we had three floors that we were operating on, as opposed to two table floors. We, four, we went from 40 covers to roughly, uh, um, uh, if you just use the two floors, 100 covers. But then if you go to the three floors, I had three, because there were like flats upstairs. I turned those in private teaching rooms for like hen nights and stuff. So we on on a Saturday night we could have in up to about 150 to 160 people. It's a beast. It's a beast to handle. Yeah, and that was a lot, and that was great for the time when it worked. But then in the year 2008, the recession hit. Mm. And when the recession hit, it hit the hit our industry hard because. People no longer wanted to go out. Well, no, they, they wanted to, but they couldn't afford to go out, say, to eat a meal on a Tuesday. You could only do that. That was reserved for a Friday and a Saturday. So what we found is all of a sudden these hundred covers and spaces um, ended up being, you know, if we were lucky, 20 people during the week on a given night. And then on the weekends, we'd be full again. But you cannot pay seven days' worth of bills with two days' worth of money. No, it's a possible business. My partner partner had um, quite a few pubs and restaurants until about Uh two years ago, and he won't even talk to me about the stress at all. Yeah, it's some stressful times. So when the recession hit, it hit us hard. And we, you know, and we tried. I mean, to be honest, part of my poorism stubbornness I really should have shut my doors a year earlier, but I refused. I kept praying for a breakthrough. I kept thinking, it's going to change. It's going to change. It's going to get easier. And, we, you know, when we went on TV, we were, you know, really popular. So our bank manager said, you know what, we're going to help you because you're, you're, you're a good business. You're good for Brighton. And we came up with a package that would have kept us going big time. Um, a lot of money as a loan to totally re- redo the building, sort out things that needed to be done, take us into the future. Then when the recession came, this bank manager got fired. They replaced them with someone else. And then that person basically reneged on the entire deal. Mm-hmm. So all of the plans that we had made and the recovery package that we thought we had went down the drain. We couldn't use it, um, and then we ended up going for an IBA, and in the end, I ended up having to go bankrupt. That's it. It's funny when things like that. They, it's like the universe is telling you to stop. <laughs> like, like you have to take yeah. a moment to breathe, and whatever yeah. way it's handed to you, it, it there is some sort of message in it. I think because there's been so many times where things like that have happened with my. I've had all these amazing things on the show because. Um, when I was when about three or four years ago, I won a contest that Simon Cow did a, that was based on Britain's Got Talent for digital, uh-huh. and yeah. no one knows that I won it because I was presenting as a girl at the time. I looked female, and he didn't want to publicise the contest with a winner that looked like that. So I never, really? yeah. So I got paid nearly six figures for the, for winning, and no one knows I won it. <laughs> so, what? 
So is it not even, is it no longer on the internet? No, they took down the entire contest. And and it's strange because there were so many moments on it that they had like an after show that was hosted by all the pop stars at the moment and, and the band Little Mix. One of the girls yeah. tried, she tried to do a Caribbean accent and it went viral because it was so bad. And that was the after uh-huh. show of me winning. And it's like, people know that moment, but they don't know anything about the contest or that someone that was LGBT actually won one of these things. So it's... Yeah. <laughs> it's crazy but I think like even though it happened and had I have got that visibility when I won I would have been like 22 and crazy <laughs> yeah, yeah. and it was the world saying to me no 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 you need to get your stuff sorted because I think like now I've met my partner and he's like got whipped me into shape so to speak I'm now yeah. I'm prepared for all the work going forwards but it's there's always those moments where you just have to accept things that happen and just think mm, that's why <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, what got me though is while the show was happening and we were big with the restaurant, I was on TV all the time. I remember morning. I was on every single program going and doing well with it as well. The minute I went bust, you would have thought I had just disintegrated into dust. I have not had any offers since. And it really upsets me when I see, and and the reasons I was told was, oh, well, you don't have a restaurant anymore. Well, there's loads of chefs on TV who do not have a restaurant. Mm. Um, I was at the time with Vino DiCaprio, Ling, um, oh God, all of these chefs who are huge now were at the exact same time when I was there. And I've cooked with every last one of them all of them and held my ground but I don't get called they all get called I don't and it just it's just so upsetting but that's one of the reasons now I love doing my YouTube channel because I can just cook to my heart's delight um and, and it's like my own tv show I've created my own tv show that's the brilliance of social media that's the the benefit because you can pass through these gatekeepers in such an easier way now like that's I remember seeing you on TV because you had a soul in a bowl cookbook yes uh-huh. and do you know what I've just done my I've just put together my second um edition of my soul in a bowl cookbook uh, where it's been updated I've got new pictures I talk about the coronavirus of all of us being locked I've been working on this while we've been in lockdown and I've got a new website and I'm and I am launching my new cookbook um, for on my birthday. So exciting! And you're a tourist, so that's coming out very soon. Yeah, real soon. Within two weeks, I will have. Uh, and it's so funny because I put, you know, we're working on it, and it's going to be interactive. So it's on an online cookbook. So you read through the cookbook, and then you can also click on the title. And if I've made a video, it takes you straight to the video so you can see how it's done. And then it takes you back to the text. That is a genius. Uh, That's a genius way of doing it. Which I think is a brilliant idea. So I've just got to figure out how to promote this bad boy. I'm, I'll be happy to feature on my website. It'd be lovely if you could. It'd be great if you could. 
And I know, Jessup, you're saying you don't want to be seen, but I would love to cook with you. Oh, my God. I would absolutely die. And I did not know you were just around the corner. So after we're allowed to go out, I'll have to come around and say thank you in person and bring you a gift for being on my podcast. Oh, thank you. But no, I would I'll tell you why. Because what I wanted, what I did when I'm I'm trying to do this thing called like my studio audience, my home audience, <laughs> and I set my computer up in the kitchen so that it's facing me on this site that we're using right now, and then I cook. But I've got you right there with me, so you can react, you can talk, you can ask, and then I embed the video from you, from the person that's watching me into the video that I'm cooking in the corner so that the audience can see you looking at me, talking to me in real time. So we could cook something vegetarian together. That would be brilliant. I'd be I'd be so honoured and, and love would to do you? that. Yes, I would. I'd, we'd have to arrange that. That would be lovely. So let's arrange it. You just let me know your availability and then I will come up with a, a really cool vegetarian dish and um, you just sit there and just... Watch and talk. Yes, ma'am. Thank you. That'd be amazing. So, for all of the people, if you wouldn't mind sharing that with your audience, of course, I would love it. Of course, I would be honoured. So, for all the people listening, how can they find you across social media? Because you have an incredible archive of videos of recipes which I've followed along with before. Have you? Yes, I have. Thank you. So they can find me on YouTube under Mama Cherry or Instagram Mama Cherry One. And believe it or not, I've even started doing TikTok. (laughs) (laughs) Are you going to do any TikTok dances of your past career as a pop star? (laughs) I think I will. I shall do. You could do a dressing up number. Uh huh. No, well, that's not on TikTok yet. And I'm gonna maybe I have to go back and redo that for TikTok. The problem I have with TikTok right now is my granddaughter's on it, and she's so embarrassed. Oh. Her nanny is on TikTok. <laughs> <laughs> she's banned. She's she's blocked me from her site because she does quite well on there. Oh, I can say, I can say, come on, Ellis, you got to help your nanny out. Yeah, you know, I'm No, no, you're too embarrassing. <laughs> oh, that's so sweet. Well, I'll wrap up here, and um, because we've been, I've taken your time up for nearly an hour, and I don't want to steal all your day. <laughs> oh. Joseph, it's been brilliant chatting to you. Oh, you too. It, it really has. And um, I am got, I've got your email now, so I am going to get back to you so that we can arrange for you to cook with me. Mm-hmm. But if you can just let your followers know. And I mean, the thing that I'm lacking over here on YouTube even is the subscriptions from the UK people. I'm huge in America. Yes. <laughs> But yes. not over here. It's weird. It's weird. It's, but I live here. <laughs> it's funny. We, we, I'll, I'll come up with a plan because I work with YouTube now behind the scenes a little bit. I'm, I'm a product tester for their new um, functions. So I get to yeah. talk to them quite a lot. So I'll think about something because maybe... Please, I mean, I did win one of the YouTube... I was part of the YouTube Next Up group last year, which was great. Yes. So... I go down to the headquarters and, you know, in London and, and I love it. They're brilliant people. Yes. But, you know, I don't know how to get sponsorship. That's what I'm lacking. Oh, I'll help you. I'll, I'll link you to some things after I'll send if you an you email. If you could, that would be just, that would help so much. I'm just, you know, and I think part of my thing is I don't ask 
But I'm getting to the stage now. I have to start asking because I'm, I'm getting to be an old lady now. <laughs> I always, I, I watched an interview with Naomi Campbell when I was really young and she said, oh, never be scared to ask for things. I asked for like a Vogue magazine cover and that made my whole career. And I was like, oh, oh my God, lovely. I have to ask for everything. So I, I send out emails all the time telling people to send me things. <laughs> yeah, well. It works, well, it scratch works. scratch my back and I'll scratch I'll your I'll help baby. you. Yes, ma'am. All right, then. Well, send in love. Send in love. We might pass each other up there in Marlowe. Yeah, I'm normally out at the night time, which I can't be at the moment. So. I don't blame you. Well, if you happen to come down Southdown Road, there's cupcakes tonight. Oh, okay, lovely. Well, send in love to you and your family and take care during Corona. You too. All right, bye-bye. All right, guys. Well, that is the finish of my episode. Hopefully you enjoyed it. And I wanted to keep this one pretty much raw because the more conversational, the better these come across. And even when there's mistakes I've made in the recording or sometimes in the questions, because I'm so eager to talk to people, I think you guys like to hear that stuff better. So check out Mama Cherry and I'll put all her YouTube links and website in the links below. She's also going to be launching an interactive version of her famous book. And I can't wait for you guys to see us cook together in the future. All right, guys, see you in the next episode and take care.